Welcome to the Whiskey and Lemon podcast. I am your host, Lana Mercedes. And I am your co-host, Nurjahan Bolden. Welcome back to the show, Nurjahan. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here again. I am so excited to have you. And just a brief disclaimer again, this is a part two from our last episode. So if any discussion of gun violence or trauma violence in any regard may be triggering for you, then I please advise you to skip this episode. Absolutely. Or maybe listen when you're ready. Yeah, actually, I encourage people to listen when they're ready. And if it, if there's anything that is triggering, make sure that you reach out for support um, afterwards. But hopefully it'll be healing. Yes. And we will, I have some things and we can collaborate um, at the end to throw in any resources that might be helpful. And we can add that to the episode notes. Perfect. So I first wanted to jump into correlation of protest because we briefly mentioned that on the last episode. Uh, But the reason why I found this something to be or important to talk about is based on the protests that were happening last year. Um, Mm -hmm. As we briefly discussed, I've had a lot of anxiety around some of the things that are going on. But I find that and correct me if I'm wrong, in your situation, when you went through your shooting, was it a big struggle in the beginning or for how long for you to step back into either an environment that was similar to the one that you were in or just any type of social situation? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think right after my shooting, I, I tried my best to pretend that everything was fine. So I, you know, I still went to concerts. I still went out at night when I could. Again, I was at that point, I had, um, I was in a wheelchair some of the time. I remember going to a Talib Kweli concert and wheeling myself up to the front of the crowd Mm. (laughs) and then, um, and going from there. So I was trying to pretend (laughs) everything is, I know me too. I was trying to pretend everything that was, was normal. You know, I would go out dancing. I would do all of that. And I would literally dance on one leg. I was determined, Mm -hmm. but I do remember the first time that I felt triggered. It was that, that winter. So I got shot in July, um, at a nightclub. And then that winter, I went out in New York and we went out to a nightclub and I was on edge already. I don't know. There was something about the vibe of the place. I hadn't gone out to a nightclub yet. So I was on college campus throughout that first semester. And I went out to um, kind of dance events and things like that and to concerts, like I mentioned, but I hadn't been to a nightclub yet. So I went to this nightclub and somebody was getting angry. And they started to argue. And I just, I, I told my sister, I have to get out of here. I can't, I couldn't stay in that place. And I felt so terrified because I just didn't know. I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but I never saw the shooter. I never saw anything coming. I never heard any bullets beforehand. I just felt the shooting first. And so the fact that, sorry, correct me. I don't remember. Was this from behind that they got you in the leg or it's from it was technically from the side, but I only found that out because the mm. detective that came into the hospital, they had a detective stay overnight in the hospital in my room because mm. just in case there was any kind of retaliation. Yeah. But um, the detective tried to draw out what the, what the rooftop looked like and where I was sitting and what direction I was facing, facing in. So I told him all the details and then 
I didn't even, again, I didn't, I didn't know where I got shot at first, yeah. but then this is going to be really gross. They, when they took my leg and they started pouring some kind of liquid through my leg from one end of the bullet hole, I know through to the other, cause it was a through and through gunshot wound shattering my tibia. Okay. So you could see the liquid going in the one side and coming out the other side. Mm-hmm. And I was on, I'm sure I was on morphine. I don't know, what I was on, but <laughs> yeah. I remember it really distinctly. Cause it was a really wild image to be able to see water pouring through your leg. I remember them pouring it from one side, from the right side to the left side of my right leg. So it was from the outside to the inside. And they told me, oh, here's the exit wound to your here's the exit wound. Cause the exit wound looked like an explosion. The entrance wound just looked like a dot. It was really clean. And then the exit wound was just, it was filled with bullet fragments and all that stuff. So the detective basically mapped out where the gunman must've been standing in order to shoot me from that direction. Again, they didn't know if it went through somebody first or if it bounced off of somebody first. Cause they said it wasn't as high velocity as an, uh, an automatic weapon usually would be. Um, but it was, the guy was kind of to my side, but a little bit back is what they, they think happened. Um, but because I didn't see anything coming, anything that could possibly be a sign of things escalating or things going badly in any direction started to scare me. So I went on and off with being able to go places and feeling totally fine as long as I was distracting myself Mm -hmm. to more and more feeling terrified in not just the place where my shooting happened, you know, not just in a nightclub, but anywhere that I went. Yeah. Okay. Um, Man. Yeah. I can only imagine if you're saying that's such a distinct memory that you have, that's, that's gotta be, do you feel like when you even as you're explaining it, like thinking back, does it, is it just something like, oh, wow, that's crazy that happened? Or does it bring you back again to the actual moment? That doesn't bring me back to the moment. Uh, it just feels like a, a wild and crazy thing. I had so many conversations with doctors that were a little bit surreal. There are some things that they said that were really triggering for me mm-hmm. and some things that were just, oh, that's interesting. The funny thing is the liquid going through my leg just felt like, huh, that's an interesting thing that's happening right now. Yeah, right. That's so it might've been the drugs. Really? Yeah. But the thing that really got me was when he said that it was right next to my artery. And if it had hit my artery, I'd have bled out and died. And that to me stayed with me for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when I met, I met another man uh, again, like 11 years after my shooting who lost his brother to gun violence and his brother had been shot in the leg and it hit his artery and he bled out and died. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, I, had a panic attack. I felt like I was supposed to die. I couldn't breathe. I, it took me a really long time to work through that feeling that I was supposed to die too. Can you explain, and maybe it's just a feeling and you, not something you can actually put into words, but why the feeling of like, you should have died then gave you a panic attack. Was it like, you felt like you escaped it and it was going to happen or like what what was your mind? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in retrospect, again, I mean, I, they're just the ways that I understand it looking back right. on it or how I was feeling it at the time, but it really felt like it was coming from survivor's guilt from that feeling that it. somehow I lived. And this man who told me about his 
brother was really loving and really kind. He was telling, we were at a conference and I had shared my story and the story hit him hard because it was almost the anniversary of his brother's shooting. Mm -hmm. And he kept telling me, you were supposed to live, you were meant to live. And every time he said that I had this physical reaction, in my body, because it, I didn't feel like I was supposed to live. I felt like I was supposed to die. I just didn't. And I didn't know what to do having not died. I didn't know how to live. And in a lot of ways, I felt like living was so much harder than dying would have been in that moment. It feels really callous to say, especially knowing so many people lose their lives and how they don't get another chance and they don't get to do the things that I'm doing in this world. And that's where a lot of the guilt comes from. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, it, it comes back for me sometimes where I feel like it's so hard sometimes to figure out how to live after something happens that that feels like it was supposed to end you you know it's hard to figure out why am I still here what am I supposed to do with this and am I doing enough you know was I could somebody else have done this better could the man who was laying next to me have done this better Mm -hmm. should I have been the one that that died instead of him and that's the the thing that kept cycling in my mind over and over again or the man that got shot in the leg and it did hit his artery yeah you know it's like am I utilizing this this gift enough to like show the appreciation or something. Yeah. Yeah. And this guilt of, you know, why did, why am I still here? What are, I shouldn't be here. I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt it for so long and it was so hard for me to get to the point where I had permission. I felt like I had permission from myself to live, mm-hmm. not just be alive, but to find, to be happy to be alive. It took me so long to feel happy to be alive. How long approximately? I actually remember the day. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I remember the day because mm-hmm. I think I shared my, um, the seven agreements for survivors that yeah. I have. Okay. So mm-hmm. the last one is I'm happy to be alive. So I wrote out those agreements based on. Which for the listeners, if you haven't listened to when I first recorded with Nurjahan, there's two episodes, um, I'd say maybe around episode 11 or so. Um, mm-hmm. You can go back and hear that. And she goes over all the agreements. Perfect. Okay. So I wrote out those agreements because they were things that I was struggling with and they were things I talked to dozens and dozens of other survivors and listened to the things that they were struggling with the most. Mm. And I wrote out those agreements based on the things that I was struggling with and they were struggling with. They weren't, it wasn't, I wrote these agreements because I had figured out how to do them. And some of the agreements just for context are, you know, I am whole, I feel safe right now. Mm. Um, I'm happy to be alive. That's the agreement number seven. Yeah. I didn't write them out because I already felt that way. I wrote them out because I wanted to feel that way. Those were the things that were missing in my life. I felt broken. Uh I felt unsafe. I felt really sad to be alive. And I remember it's, I don't even, maybe I don't remember the year. It might've been 2017 or 2018. I'm not sure what the year was. But I remember it was April and I remember I was sitting at my table downstairs. I was looking outside at this lemon tree that we have and I was just looking at the blossoms on the tree and I thought, oh my goodness, 
right here, right now, for the first time, I feel happy to be alive. And it was a moment in this moment, I feel happy to be alive. And it felt like such a massive revelation because I hadn't had that feeling in over a decade. I, and maybe more than that, I guess if it was in 2018, it was like 12 years after my shooting, all of a sudden it's like, it washed over me and I felt it. And then I got so scared that it was going to leave. I thought, what if I don't feel this feeling again? Yeah. Like, how do I hold on to this? Yeah. 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 And then I thought, well, I'm just going to, I made the, the agreements because I wanted them to be like affirmations or like gratitude, you know, a reminder of what I feel in this moment right now. Not because once you get to that point where you feel whole, all of a sudden you feel whole all the time, but because when I feel that I want to anchor myself in it. So I decided to just be really grateful that in that moment, I felt happy to be alive. And if it went away, that was okay. I knew that I could get there. Mm -hmm. And so, and I got there, it was actually after I had gone to this retreat and I worked through the, that feeling of, I wasn't meant to live. I'd gone to the retreat Mm -hmm. and it was about 30 women and we went through this whole process. But one of the parts of the process were, was, you know, we were, they asked us what we wanted to work through. And we went into the middle, the person who they were working on went into the middle of the circle. So my turn, I went to the middle of the circle and everybody basically said what they wanted to achieve. I said, I wanted to be able to feel all my feelings and survive. Cause I thought if I felt all the feelings I was feeling, I would die. It felt that terrifying. Mm -hmm. So I went into the middle of the circle and I broke down and I couldn't get back up. You know, all these other women had done it and they broke down and then they started you know, celebrating and felt really good and felt this release. I couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't physically move. And so they came up to me and they asked me what I needed and I didn't know. And so they asked me to lay down. I laid down on my back and I spread out my arms and legs. And they said, is it okay if everybody comes and holds you? And I said, yes. And so 30 women came and just held me and I was shaking and I was crying and I couldn't move. And they held me while I felt all of those feelings. While I felt the terror of dying and or feeling like I should have died. Yeah. And it was on the other side of that, that I, for the first time felt like I was happy to be alive for the first time. Mm -hmm. And it was an amazing, amazing feeling. And I know I wouldn't have been able to get to that if I didn't have people to hold me through that, which isn't a part of the traditional you know, mental health services that we have. Yeah. I was really grateful to be able to have that opportunity where, where I could be held um, because the trauma that I experienced was so trapped in my body that I needed help through it. I, I couldn't talk it out. I couldn't, I couldn't even use somatic healing techniques um, to make it resolve by myself because I was too scared to do it by myself. So that would yeah. be really powerful for me. It sounds like a lot of um, like the unplanned healing moments are the ones that actually resonate yeah. the most, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I don't know. It sounds like you had, maybe it wasn't an initial because I wasn't expecting you to say that you would just go, you're going to like Talib Kweli concert. <laughs> and like you were just getting back out there. And again, maybe I'm, I'm thinking of how I would handle it, but I've also never been an experience mm-hmm. to know. And we all handle, you know, trauma differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but that brings me back to the, the correlation to protests of where 
as I said, I've, you know, struggled with anxiety and I say it on a very minimal scale up until the pandemic, because mm-hmm. remember I mentioned on the last episode, I wanted yeah. to add the notifications on my phone to see what's going on with COVID. And then along with COVID news comes all this other news. And that's when it went from like zero to a hundred. Yeah. Um, but I remember I had one of my friends asking me like, let's go to the protest. Like, let's go, let's do this. And to some people protest, going to a protest is like the ultimate way of like, you know, support or, um, rec- I don't want to use the word, uh, like acknowledgement of what's going on or showing mm. where you stand, where there's other, you know, some people are paying, um, whatever the case may be calling departments, all these different avenues that you can take. But a lot of the people around me were doing protests or going Mm -hmm. to protests. And I don't even tell me if I'm wrong, because this is just the way I viewed it. But I looked at nudging someone whose anxiety can quickly manifest from a state of panic or into a state of panic and going to a protest could be the same as trying to force someone that may have went through a traumatic experience, whether it be gun violence or abuse into that same type of environment or social situation, because they're not ready for that, or they're not, that's not how they do, how they process their feelings. Protesting might be the way that someone can go and get out their frustration or their self-expression where someone else needs to sit down and educate people and someone going into an environment like that where they're already dealing with anxiety and unfortunately all the things that do come with the protest but the more violence that we see there might not be the the way that the person's going to be them their best selves they could be their best selves educating someone i bet that's where i strive because me being in a protest or if I already have heightened anxiety of being around these massive groups of people and then also seeing if there's these bouts of violence everywhere I'm not go- I'm not going to be effective there yeah I'm, I'm just going to be a person standing there where if I sit down and I can talk with someone that's where I'm going to thrive absolutely I wholeheartedly agree and I actually think it's necessary we need people to fight in different ways and in different mm-hmm. contexts I think that's one of the things that I struggle with when it comes to activism sometimes and I this is I'm coming from a perspective of I am all about protesting, all about putting your body out there. I go to as many protests as I can. I went to protests in my wheelchair and I also got extremely traumatized at a protest in my wheelchair because there was a car that backfired and I thought that it was a shooting. And I got, I remember that was one of my first moments of, oh my goodness, it's happening again. And so I, I'm saying that when protesting is one of my go-to methods for me, protesting, donating, um, and calling, I think, I think money is really important because where we put our money really does dictate what gets the most support and who gets to lead Mm -hmm. these. And following that line, right. Cause sometimes you might think you're donating to one place and it's really going somewhere else. So So follow that line. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. But, and I think about even gun violence, um, prevention, some of the biggest organizations are organizations that have these, this massive amount of money and power and their focus is on legislation, which is important, 
and also ends up criminalizing people with guns when the people with the with the highest likelihood of being shot are people of color and then people that are the highest number of people who are in prisons and are going to be impacted by that legislation are also people of color i think it's really important for the people leading the process to be the people that are most impacted I said all of that. I know I jumbled yeah. it all up, but you get no, the idea, yeah, right? And definitely. the only problem is um, organizations led by people <clears throat> of color are drum, like drastically underfunded. And so putting your money where your mouth is, I think is important if you can't afford that. So some people can donate and that is a great thing that they can do. Some people can change things in their workplace. That is an amazing thing to do. Some people can go out there and protest. Some people can... But I think it is really important for people to feel good about what it is that they're doing to contribute. And I think we need people to contribute in different ways. I think forcing anybody who doesn't feel physically safe to do something is never a good, it's never a loving thing to do, right? Even just the word force. Yeah. It's so... Over the top, I will say I actually had immense guilt for not participating. I went to one protest last summer, but I felt a lot of guilt that I couldn't go to protest because of my kids' anxiety. You know, my kids, we talked to them, we've spoken to them about um, police violence since they were little. And I have three brown, black boys, Mm -hmm. and they've heard these things for a very long time. And I think there was some part of me that felt like, you know, in 2015, things were really going to change. So when I spoke to them about it, then I felt like I was speaking to them about it from a place of hope. Mm. Um, And, you know, since the day that they were born, they've been wearing t-shirts and going to protests. And, you know, a lot of it can be seen as also performative activism too, you know, so there are different kinds of activism. We all like to judge each other for whatever method we choose. But my kids, by the time we talked to them about George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor's death and all of the things that happened last summer, um, we tried to wait a little bit until it got to the point where they were hearing about it and we couldn't, we couldn't avoid talking to them about it. Um, because I, I worry about my 11 year old. He grew up with a lot of anxiety because he was growing up as I wasn't dealing with my own PTSD and I was putting a lot of that on him. Okay. And so I worry about his mental health sometimes. And I was nervous about talking to him about this because it, it does stress him out. And all three of my, well, my youngest doesn't, he, he's, he was four at the time. So he wasn't as conscious about it. And we didn't sit down with him and talk about it in the same way, but they were so terrified to go outside. They were terrified to join protests and I was staying at home with them and I felt like I could either force them again, the word force yeah, into a situation that felt really uncomfortable for them and may not have been safe for them, or we could find different ways of participating. And so we found different ways of participating and we continue to find different ways of participating. Yeah. But I think protests are really important to me for a couple of reasons. One is it can be a release of that anger that we were talking about, like a healthy way of expressing anger. If you feel good about it, if you feel like it's a place that you want to be and it feels like an outlet. 
it can also be, you know, it shows the world. It's, it's, it's a, a visual that people can see that disrupts our everyday life to show Mm -hmm. that massive amounts of people care about this. So those two reasons, I think, make it make protesting really important, but I don't think it's ever effective to force somebody into a place that they don't feel comfortable in. Mm -hmm. And I have, I know Mm -hmm. that feeling of anxiety. Yeah. And it can be debilitating. Yeah. Debilitating. You asked um, how long it took me before I got started getting scared in the places that reminded me of my shooting. And for me, we don't talk about this very much that sometimes when you experience severe trauma, it doesn't Mm -hmm. show up until later or it gradually your world starts to shrink because of fear, which is what happened with me. So I decided everything's going to be the same. And then slowly with every kind of terrifying thing that happened with every trigger that felt like another horrible experience for me Um, or with every other bad thing that happened after my shooting I started looking I started thinking about the world as chaos like bad things happen every single day there's nothing that we can do about it look at that look at that look at that and I was finding examples of chaos everywhere because if you're looking for chaos you're gonna find it oh yeah if you're looking for the (laughs) miracles in the world you'll find those but I was not looking for miracles yeah and so my world started to shrink because I was scared and scared and scared and scared to the point where I got extreme anxiety going to the grocery store or going to work or going to dropping my kids off at school. I started to feel anxiety like that. And I had to figure out how to feel safe again in the moment while I was driving my car, for example, you know, that anxiety can be so debilitating. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, do you know where your, how does, how did your anxiety kind of manifest itself over this past year? How did you know that you were feeling anxiety? Like what did, what did, what did it look like for you? Um, so before I answer that question, yeah, I just want to acknowledge what you said about the ways that people can show up, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, donating or calling or And I think that's something that's very, um, I don't want to say unique because I mean, it is unique, but that we both do in our work where it's not about like, there's this one thing that's going to work for everyone, which is also something that's very um, expressive in your agreements. It's not like, take this one thing that's going to work for everyone, but like (laughs) find out what's going to work for you. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there could be me where a stress relief for me is to go work out or you it's to go and dance where someone else might say, well, that's physically exhausting for me. So, and then that doesn't help me. Um, that kind of puts them at a disadvantage or someone might find that meditation is great for them where someone else can find that place of like emptiness in their mind, very damaging. Yeah. So it's about what works for you. Absolutely. And I think different things work at different times too. Like just because we yeah. found one thing that works doesn't mean it's going to be a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Like the somatic healing methods worked so well for me when I was, when I was first addressing some of the trauma that I experienced, Yeah, but it, it wasn't working for me when it came to that feeling that I was supposed to die. Yeah. I needed, I needed that physical touch 
while I was feeling those feelings in order to be able to feel safe enough to work through it. Yeah. Um, I bring that up because like you said, there are different things that will work for you at different times as well. And for me, because my anxiety was on a, I don't, minimal level, but it was more so based on just small bits of information where not to say that it's not a big deal, but I felt like I, the way I reacted could have been a little bit too, like I got a small bit of information and like anxiety might've came from that where I didn't fully grasp what was going on. Uh, examples would just be if my mom's calling me at like 11 at night it's like oh well this is an odd hour for her to call and before I even can answer the phone I might miss the call because all these things are running through my head as to what's going on you know and being so afraid and answering the phone which I get from my mom she has anxiety so like answering the phone either what's wrong or just answering hello and terrified of like how the voice is going to sound on the other end um but it was things more like that And not to say that, you know, news events weren't scary for me, but it just didn't affect me the way that it has the past year. Yeah. Um, And I think when I would have those bouts of anxiety, like I said, the random, the phone calls or just, you know, someone's on the loose in my area, whatever the case may be, it was better for me to deal with it on my own and just not talk about it and let it pass because, I personally felt that my emotions or reaction to whatever was going on was a little um, premature. And then now doing things on my own is not helpful, or at least in what's going on with, with these particular events is not helpful. I need to talk about it. I need to have conversations about it. These conversations that you and I have have been so healing or, um, even saying to someone like, I don't need you to have the right thing to say. I'm just getting this off my chest and yeah. letting them know up front. I'm just venting. Yeah. yeah. Because I just need to get it out because yeah. for me, it was holding it in was making it harder. And it possibly could have been one of those things where, uh, was the term that I used for this, but you know, say you don't drink enough water mm-hmm. and you're only having two, three cups of water a day and you have all this water in the fridge. And then the moment you run out of water, you are so thirsty. Yeah. And it's like, where was that yesterday? (laughs) So maybe it was from a place of, I had people I could talk to, or I could be around to make me feel better Mm -hmm. without actually having to express how I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward to this past year where I, I didn't have that. It wasn't even a thing I could do if I wanted to. So then I'm like, okay, I need the people. Yeah. I want to be around the people about it. Right. And now that I'm stuck only being able to do it by myself, I mean, sure, there's FaceTime talking on the phone, but sometimes you just want to sit next to somebody. And even if they don't know what's going on, you need that. And then when I didn't have it is when I was craving it. So I think for me, it's just kind of what you said, how you did your agreements of like, not, this is not where I'm at, but this is what I know that where I want to be. And having an honest conversation with myself as to what I actually need and not seeing me being able to talk to people as um, a sign of weakness that I can't do it on my own, but more strength that I'm allowing people in to, to help me. 
Yeah. Yeah. That vulnerability is one of the hardest things to do, man. We don't give it enough credit. Yeah. It's so challenging. I, I say these five simple words. It's my favorite phrase in the world. It is, I think a very powerful phrase Mm -hmm. and it's very straightforward. It's I'm having a hard time. Oh yeah. That's it. Like just going to somebody and saying, I'm having a hard time. It's an opening. It's, it allows you to pour out whatever it is that you need to pour out. And it's, it's our family. We make a running joke about it because if somebody is struggling with anything, mm-hmm. those are the five, it's a really simple thing to say, but it is a very hard thing to get yourself to say when you're in it and you're struggling. Yeah. I think that anxiety, um, man, it's so relatable. I, it's so relatable to me. And I think it's relatable to almost everybody by this point. I can't imagine if you've survived through this past year, you know, no matter what the circumstances were without dealing with some level of anxiety and being able to say it out loud is so powerful and important. No matter the level, right? Even if it's not even to the level I was at and it was just walking past someone where it's oh they don't have a mask or oh this person is looking <clears throat> looking at me a certain way just yeah a glimmer just a little bit because it's putting you out of like the norm of what we've been used to absolutely yesterday I was having such a hard time because somebody is currently reading my synopsis <laughs> for my book and I'm like Oh, what if they hate it? My mind goes to all of the, my mind spirals and it spirals so beautifully quickly. And it goes (laughs) to all of the worst case scenarios first. I don't know. It's very ambitious and it likes to to deal with everything at the bottom first, Mm -hmm. but I do because I struggled with this for so long with again, the baseline anxiety of everyday stuff that gives you anxiety versus you know, I've experienced the severe trauma and the situation I'm in right now is reminding me of that. And I feel like I'm not safe right now. I think I have some things that I've, that I've kind of learned along the way that help me through that in the moment. And they're really helpful to me again. So part of my approach to healing is I want to learn as much as I can learn from other people. And I want to learn all of the methods that I can learn that might be helpful to me. And I want to create my own. I want to come up with stuff that works well for me. And I think everybody should be empowered to be able to do things like that. I think it's one of the, you know, we depend on a lot of other people to be the experts in our own healing. Yeah. And there's so much power in claiming yourself as an expert in your healing process and giving yourself permission to come up with ways to work through things when you're struggling. So some things that have worked for me that I've used, whether I'm in a public place and I think that a shooter could come in or whether I'm spiraling because somebody's reading my writing, <laughs> like yeah. that, that vast difference of things, right? Yeah. One of the things I do is number one, what you said, you know, reach out to somebody for help or just to get something off of my chest. So that's one thing, but sometimes there's not always somebody who's around who can be helpful. And quick point too, that why that's so important is because a lot of times, you know, we just, 
getting caught up in our own lives and we're so busy where we might start going through all these, you know, spiraling in our mind, expecting someone to just reach out or, or see it on our face or know in our voice that we're feeling a certain way. And they have their own things going on where they don't know. So yeah. don't feel bad or feel like no one's there for you if they're not reaching out because they could have their own things. So we have to still take that responsibility to reach out ourselves. Absolutely. And sometimes people don't know how to help. Sometimes they've been asking you if you need help this whole time and you've been like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Not mm -hmm. realizing that that's what they were trying to do. Right. And the other thing is or expecting them to know how to help you when you don't know yeah, what you need yourself. Exactly. Or they just say they, they're on. They don't know what to, you know, we're not taught. We don't teach each other and we're not taught how to support each other when we're struggling the most. Like mm -hmm. I, I didn't learn about holding space for somebody until I was in my thirties <laughs> Yeah, about sitting and just holding space and not needing to respond and not needing to fix them, but just allowing them to be whatever they feel, feel whatever they feel at the moment. Yeah. There's so much power in that. And it's not something we learn in elementary school. It's not something that we prioritize. I think some powerful words, if you don't even know, because I've had a situation where I expected someone to, I actually learned this in therapy, but it's not to go into a situation expecting someone's response, but it's more about you and just getting something off of your chest or being able to express. And if you're trying to go in, all you can do is control yourself. So you can't control how the other person's going to react to it. And if you're going in saying, I'm going to do this, and then this person's going to come over and embrace me and say all the right words, you mm -hmm. might be let down. So if you are on the other side of that, you can simply say, you know, I'm sorry, you're going through this. I don't know how to help you, but I am here for you. Like you can just be on it. I really don't know how to help, or I'm still processing this, but no, I'm here. I'm just, I, it's going to take me a minute. Yeah. Because then, you know, the person didn't dismiss you, you or you yeah. didn't dismiss them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And as a person who's asking for help, there's so much power in being able to say what you need. And a lot of times people don't know what they need, but most likely if you don't know what you need, just ask for somebody to just listen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you don't know what Definitely. you need, then ask them to listen because having somebody listen is never a bad thing. And it usually helps you get to your own solution in a lot of cases. Yeah. Because it's not common that we have that space held for us. Mm -hmm. um, I also think something that we, that we lose sight of is that when we let ourselves be vulnerable with somebody else, mm -hmm. it's an opening for connection between yourself and that other person. And it gives, it's an invitation to them to be vulnerable with you. It yeah. becomes, it's like a two-way bridge, you know, but somebody has got to unlock that bridge in order for it to start. So right. you being the vulnerable one first, you're inviting them to do the same. And it's an opening. It's a, I think it's a beautiful thing and it's really powerful and it's a gift that you're giving to that other person. Mm -hmm. um, but so that was one thing is saying that you're having a hard time to somebody else. The other thing that I do that's really helpful to me is trying to anchor myself in what's real in that moment. Because my mind goes to places that are not real. My mind goes all over the place. But if I anchor myself in what's real in that moment, and I say it from a place of gratitude, it somehow shifts. It shifts the way I'm thinking. Now, if I'm in a space where I don't feel safe, 
I don't go, I, I'm not going to be like, I'm so grateful for it. <laughs> I need to feel safe first, you know? So right. I need to feel safe first. If I feel like, if I don't feel physically safe right now in the moment, cause something bad is happening, then I'm going to do whatever the hell I have to do to get out of there. So that's number one. But if I feel unsafe because of something could maybe happen, I'm not sure. I let myself come up with an escape plan. So I think, okay, if a man with a gun walks through that door, I am going to jump over this desk. I'm going to hide over here. I'm going to slam this door. I'm going to go out this way. So I'll, I let myself go all the way to that place. And I let myself come up with an escape plan. But once I've come up with that escape plan, it's time to let it go. Like I have my escape plan. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to think about it. If anything were to happen, I know I have a plan. If I'm choosing to stay in this space, now I'm going to that place of anchoring myself in what's real. So I start saying things like, you know, I say them in my head usually. <laughs> of course, everyone around me might look at yeah. me like, who are you talking to? But I'll say, <laughs> you know, I'm so grateful that I get to spend time with my friends I'm so grateful that I get to be out here at this concert. I'm so grateful that I'm surrounded by all of these wonderful people. I'm so grateful that I can feel the open air. I'm so grateful that I have whatever it is that I need to be, that feels real to me in that moment. Sorry, not feels real. Cause sometimes you can feel like that terror is real, mm -hmm. but whatever is actually real in that yeah. moment, I start anchoring myself in that. And there's something about gratitude that allows you to be genuinely present in the moment oh yeah that is it's so powerful mm -hmm. and so I I let myself go into that gratitude place and a lot of that anxiety kind of eases away and the last thing that I do is I allow myself to um for me again I've already mentioned that somatic healing techniques work really well for me yeah. um specifically finding where the feeling is in my body so um you know, my emotions manifest themselves in my body. I can feel that fear in my stomach or that tightening in my chest. Yes. And if I allow myself to just surrender to that, to not fight it, not try to keep it and hold on to it and push it down, but instead allow it to just kind of fill my whole body. Um, and I allow myself to release it. I use one of the somatic healing practices that that I like the most, my, the practice I like the most is called the peace process. Um, okay. it was developed by Christian Michelson and I'm a big fan of it because it's simple. It's easy. I can do it while I'm in a public space. I don't have to close my eyes. You know, I can mm -hmm. just kind of be present to whatever's happening in my body. Mm -hmm. um, but whatever practice helps you release the emotion that comes with that, it helps eliminate that trigger so that that trigger doesn't keep coming up in the same situation. I think the, what you said, the escape plan, right? It's amazing because you can, you're using this physical example um, and it can work even in, in something that's not so physical, right? Say for example, you want to have a conversation with your husband. You're like, this is going to be a difficult conversation to have. Yeah. And kind of going back to what I said, if it's like, you're going to talk about something, you're expecting him to, oh, I'm going to, he's going to embrace you. Everything's going to be good. But what if he doesn't? And he responds in a way where you, you're like, that's not going to be helpful. We're doing that same thing of, okay, if he doesn't respond this way and tells me I'm overreacting and doesn't see and tells me like, I'm wrong for feeling that way. This is 
you can kind of go down that rabbit hole, kind of like what you were saying of your, your mind will go down to like the worst place, go Mm -hmm. through all of that, how it's going to make you feel. And then just say, okay, now I'm going to just do the thing because now it's about me and just like saying it. And I've already figured, I've already thought about what the worst possible scenario could be. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And not necessarily focus on what you're expecting, but now just getting that out. Yes. And for me, because I have, I don't know if you're like this, but I do this. (laughs) I'll have arguments, full arguments with my husband in my head. (laughs) And then sometimes I'll hold him to the argument that I had. Like, I know he's going to say this. And so I go in there ready to kind of, okay, you know, (laughs) ready to fight. Okay. So I'll come out of those, those fights in my head, ready to fight with him. And I, I think that one of the big things is allowing yourself to go to that worst case scenario and then bring yourself back. And that bringing yeah. myself back piece comes with that anchoring myself and what's real and what's true in this moment and doing it from a place of gratitude. So being able to do that, I like that. I didn't think about it actually for the emotional <laughs> side of stuff yeah. or for you know conversations with family members and things like that. But that's a great, yeah. it'll work for that too. Yeah, absolutely. Because what you're saying is a real thing. Like it's oftentimes where we will have an example that I used uh, with a friend of mine was if you, if you're wearing this dress and you already feel that you don't like the dress is just not flattering and it's already making you feel insecure. Right. And you have all these emotions and you're like, well, this is the dress. This is the only one I brought with me on this trip. I have to wear this. And then you go ask, you know, your partner, how do I look in this dress? And you're already feeling a certain type of way. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, okay. Like, it's cool. It's good. You know, and they're not, love, they're not loving it. Yeah. But they're just like, okay. But in your, like for them, they're like, it's not bad. Like I, it, it's not like the best dress I've seen you in, but it's cool. I dig it, you know? And then you're already feeling some kind of way. Oh, well, what does that mean? You don't like right? the way the dress looks, you know? So it's yeah. like your, your emotion and then what you're believing they're feeling. And then you're reacting and they're like, hold on, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> I said, it's cool, but you're already, you've already set in your mind, like this is going to, how it's going to happen. And you have all that like tense, feeling in your body because you're you think you now know this person better than they know themselves or know them more than how they're actually going to react and you're already ready like you said coming in there yes and you know if for people so again because I went through trauma that trauma you know young in my life I that automatic um thinking everything is going to be bad it's funny I'm such an optimistic person in so many ways <laughs> and also my mind is this powerful thing and it loves to go to the worst place man mm-hmm. I had so last week I had somebody look at my synopsis a couple of people look at my synopsis as you can tell this is the thing that's on my mind right now <laughs> but I had people look at it and this one woman gave me feedback and the feedback was actually all positive, but in the feedback, she wrote something like never give up. Right. And I was like, man, she hates it. She wants me to rewrite it now. I mean, never give up. This is like my sixth edit of it. You know, I'm just, and I got so sad afterwards. I felt so defeated. Like, again, I have to keep working on this. And then I let myself do all the things, you know, breathe through it. This is probably my mind. Yeah, because that when you said that, I was thinking something completely different, but I know what you're where you're going. Yeah. So then the other woman gave me feedback and it was all positive. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I reread the first woman's feedback and I realized that the never give up part 
was actually about the story. It was right. about me never giving up in the story. Right. And because my mind is so programmed to just go to the worst place. And I know that about my mind now. It took, it was really hard when I didn't know that about my mind because I let it go there. I let it go there. I let it stay there. I let it live there. But yeah. now that I know that about my mind, I let myself get a little bit of time and distance from whatever it is that I feel defeated about. <laughs> and then I come back to it knowing after I read that and I felt this huge drop in my stomach. I was so sad about it, but I thought to myself, this is probably not a negative comment. I bet you that if I come back in a couple of hours, I'm going to be able to read clearly. And I was, and it was, it was a really kind and loving comment and it was really positive, but you know, my mind, it goes. Yeah. Our minds are like, can be so just like stupid at times where it's we can basically (laughs) control and tell ourselves like what we need to how we actually need to be thinking and because when you made that statement you know if if that were me I could easily like what what does she mean by this Mm -hmm. and either I can do what you said step away and come back or if it's just I feel like it's going to affect how I'm going to move forward for the next couple of hours I might need to read it to somebody else Mm, and then not yep. even tell them what what I took from yep. it and just say I'm gonna read you this tell me what you take from it yes you know but yes it's, it's funny if only how I don't save myself hours in my life <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but it's funny because I think I thought that way too as an outsider because this this wasn't written to me you know mm, but we yeah way different with ourselves and you don't have those emotions with it. I mean, I think it's, I think it's amazing how powerful our minds are when we can get our minds to work in our favor. <laughs> right. I remember one time I was at a conference and the guy was like, you know, some of us have really big critics in our lives. We have those constant voices coming from the outside. And sometimes that your biggest critic is sitting in your seat right now. Right. Oh, yeah. And it's, for me, it is, it is absolutely that. And being, and constantly learning how to reshape the way I think about myself, my work, my body, all of those things. It's, it's our relationship with ourselves is a relationship. It's not like oh, yeah. I was born and I'm just good at this. It's something that we have to constantly work at. If, if you're in a marriage and you stop thinking about the other person or caring about the other person, just think everything's going to be fine. That marriage is going to slowly crumble versus actively working on it, actively speaking positively to yourself, actively working on your mindset, actively like practicing gratitude, things like that. Mm -hmm. It's so important. And a lot of times you see things on Instagram or you see these big, you know, gurus going out and mindset is everything. And (laughs) mindset is huge. And so is emotion because when you've experienced trauma, if you don't address the emotion, you're just going to p- keep being triggered because tr- triggers are an emotional response to something. Yeah. It's not logical. It's not mindset based. It's not something that you can talk yourself out of. It is a physical reaction to your emotions and being able to address those triggers, I think is just as important as being able to oh, shift yeah. that mindset. They go one in mm-hmm. the same. Yeah, I know some people can look and think, you know, I, I know some people have a negative view of self affirmations or whatever they're, mm-hmm. and they're like, it's just words, but I find something like you said, it's so powerful because it's a relationship with yeah. yourself that you Absolutely. have to nurture, you have to, you know, the way that we speak to ourselves 
can be way more harmful than we might speak to someone else. Yeah. If I even say I see a friend, maybe back to the the dress example, you know, and I have a friend like, oh, how do I look in that dress? And even if I don't think she looks that great, I might say like, oh, let's try on a couple more, but I'm mm-hmm. not going to, you know, tear her down where if I maybe go look in the mirror and look at myself in that dress and I'm like, oh, you look disgusting. Like just going off the rails to yes. myself, but you would never say that it's to someone wild. else. Yeah. I find that we have the best advice for ourselves. And that's why, you know, somebody holding space for us is just somebody being a mirror for us. It's just somebody sitting there and witnessing us as we pour out whatever it is that we're struggling with and a really good space holder. (laughs) I don't know if that's what we call people who hold space, but from this point (laughs) forward, they're space holders. So a really good space holder would also might ask you the right questions, mm-hmm. not in an over the top. And how do you feel about that? And what is, you know, like, <laughs> but really ask you, like, what do you think, what do you think will work best for you? Or what do you think you need right now? Yeah. And I think definitely it's, it works out better when they ask those questions than when they provide the answers for us, because the answers may not be at all aligned with what we actually need. Right. But when we find our own answers, mm-hmm. we're usually spot on. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times in any conversation, it's not about, and this might be a very controversial statement, but it's not about the answer being the best one. It's about having the best questions. Mm-hmm. because like you said it's not it might not be aligned with us and we know those answers but they're asking us we just don't know to even have the thought like we know what the answer is but we don't even know that that's something we need to think about so if they're asking the right okay. questions we answer it for ourselves based on how it aligns with us yes and we're so much better at taking advice from ourselves than we are oh, <laughs> yeah. somebody, somebody else telling you I think that you need professional help is not going to go quite as well as me saying, you know what? I think I need professional help. Oh yeah. Cause imagine you have a situation and you're asking like, you know, there are some people that might ask one trusted person, but then there's some people that say, Oh, I have this situation here. I'm going to go ask 10 of my friends. Yeah. And I don't care if nine of those friends tell you the thing you don't want to do. And one of them tells you this, or even if all 10 tell you the thing you don't want to do, you're going to end up doing what you want to do. Right. Or, At you the think, end or of you're going to pick which advice you think is the best advice exactly yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah um, oh you have a point go ahead well I was just gonna say so I was gonna say circling back to what we were talking about about going to protests and, and getting people outside of their comfort zone versus forcing people into situations that don't feel physically safe mm-hmm. I think it is so along the exact same lines that we just talked about people having the right answers for themselves. If you're trying to force somebody, somebody outside of their comfort zone, because you think that it's going to be good for them in some Mm -hmm. kind of way, forcing people, especially people who have some kind of anxiety that they, that they're dealing with, forcing people is not going to be healthy or good for anybody involved, Mm -hmm. right? It needs to be that person's decision. It needs to feel like the right thing to do. And I know that when we were talking about it originally, I think reminding people that there are many, many, many ways to protest against racial injustices or create the change that we want to see in our country. It's not permission to not do anything, right? Or to not say anything. It means that there are so many different ways of doing it. 
and that choosing the ways that work best for us is important because if everybody chose the same way, we wouldn't see all the changes that we need to see. And we need that diversity. Oh, right. And we need to learn how to embrace it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If it was everyone just donating, where's the education part come in? Right? Yeah, and yeah, all of it. I mean, there there's so many different ways. My goodness. Mm-hmm. And we need all of that. I have to remind myself in the gun violence prevention world that you know, we think of very specific ways that we can address gun violence and it's through the legislation that we talk about writing to your senators and do, but there are so many ways everybody needs to choose the ways that work best for both them and for what they, they believe is the best way. Yeah. Also you looking can show for leaders up. that you trust. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause if it's someone that believes this thing and they they say, you know, I have the monetary means to do this, this, and the other, like, then that, you know, then that's going to be great for you versus someone that says, you know, I feel this way, but I only have a dollar to spare. And they know that they can have these meaningful conversations, but they feel like, oh, well, donating is the only option. That's not going to be where you're going to show up the most. Exactly. And also within that, it's also recognizing that it's important, especially when it comes to the the Black Lives Matter movement, that it needs to be Black leaders that are leading each of these individual movements. Right. So because we had um, a local kind of group here who wanted to lead their own protest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really important that it's led by Black community members and not just led by people who want to do something good but you, you may get really excited about initiating something, but if you're not following the group that's directly impacted by this thing, you may be going in a very wrong direction. Oh, yeah. So it's really important to do your research and make sure that you're going in a direction that is led by the people that are most impacted by whatever movement it is that you're trying to push forward at the same time as recognizing that there is always diversity in how you can show up and that diversity yeah. is important. And wrong direction can literally mean the opposite direction, or it can even be what feels like the right direction, but because you're missing a lot of key points along the way, it's still the wrong direction. Exactly. It's not effective. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We were talking about the numbers that come from all these different types of crimes and that's always the first thing. It's always a statistic. Whenever you yeah. see a shooting or any any type of crime, it's always like, how many people were actually affected by this, right? Yeah. And it's much more than just I was that. gonna say, it's not even how many people were affected. It's it's usually yeah. how many people died. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because we you you take away from Yes, there's these, this amount of people, but let's talk about the family members. Let's talk about the friends. Let's talk about the community. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the people that now have PTSD from what's going on. The people that now have hopelessness yeah. and hypervigilance and um, sometimes even the opposite direction, this desensitization that people are getting because of all the things that are going on. So yeah. it's not just these four people. It's exactly. now- maybe this 200 people that this four, this one person's associated with and 2000 that this other person's associated with. Mm-hmm. And that's just association. How about the people that are watching it on the news or the per- people that are getting the alerts Yeah, or the other things we don't see how it's affected on the, you know, when well, it comes to mental health to go through active shooter drills <clears throat> every day as a result right. of constant. Yeah. Right. 
So there's a lot more that's there. And then that's how we get into this place of even needing to do the protests in the first place, Mm -hmm. because we don't feel that anyone cares or the ones that are making the changes care. Mm -hmm. So that's how you get into that place. Like I said, of hopelessness, because we keep seeing it happen or the hypervigilance of always needing to make sure that we are, you know, that we're prepared Mm-hmm. or that we can do our part trying to save someone else or the desensitization like I mentioned of just people now saying like oh of course there's another one yeah that doesn't oh. make it any less severe just because it keeps happening it's unfortunate yes but it's it's no less of a crime than the one that happened two years ago or two months ago or 20 years ago it's just it's that makes it just more of an issue to- Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it, um, I think there are a couple of things that you said in there that I think are really interesting. One is the how many people are impacted when each of these things happen Mm -hmm. and the normalization of it. My goodness, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I honestly, I don't know how we got to a point where it's normal for kids to hide in bathrooms as a regular training. You know, my, my son, when he was in third grade, his teacher taught him how to run zigzag away from a shooter in school. That was what he was learning in school. And I cried that night that he told me that because it's, it's so disturbing that our, our, my children are growing up with it being just a normal everyday part of their lives and how that shapes how they walk through the world every day, you know, and the people that are impacted, I think about how many people are impacted with every individual shooting. I tell people, so the definition of a survivor is anybody who's been impacted by gun violence in any way, shape or form. So if you're present during a shooting, whether you got shot or not, if you were shot, if you lost a loved one to a shooting, whether you were present or not, if a shooting took place in your neighborhood, if there was a drive-by, if your house got shot, there are so many different ways that you can be a survivor. And the people who have the most, um, the lightest stories, what might seem like the lightest stories, like, oh, I was, I was in the supermarket and then I left. And right after that, I saw in the news that the supermarket got shut up yeah. and that could have been me. And I have yeah. been looking over my shoulder ever since, you know, I, t- I try to remind those people to tell your story if you feel comfortable. And when you're ready tell your story far and wide because people need to hear it. People need to know how deeply you're impacted from having the experience that you had, both because it shows us how many people really are impacted and because anybody else who's feeling the same way as you feel and is feeling like their story doesn't count or that they are not a survivor because they weren't directly shot or uh, it blows my mind when we have um, people, we, we host a survivor room on clubhouse on the first and third Sundays of the month. And it always blows my mind when you have people who are very obviously survivors, um, who come up on stage and share that they've had experience with gun violence, but still say that they're not survivors, right? We had somebody who lost her sister in the Vegas shooting. And she said, 
you know, I'm just here to listen. I'm not ready to share my story yet. You know, and she, she sat there and listened for a while. And then afterwards she was like, I'm just so grateful for all of you. You really are survivors. I don't even know what that must be like. You know, I'm not a survivor, but I still feel these things. I'm still terrified every time I go in a grocery store. I'm still this, I'm still that. And we kept telling her, you are a survivor. You are, you know, she woke up to, I don't know, over 30 phone calls the next morning telling her that her sister was killed. You know, she, she lives with that everyday reality and that anxiety that you get in the aftermath when something that seems like it, it could never happen becomes so real in your life. Yeah. It's, it's all about how, because another thing that we do as people is try to tell someone whether or not their experience is traumatic or not. We don't get to make that decision for someone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there's this, the three E's or stages of trauma, which are event experience effect. Mm -hmm. And it could be something as little as, and I use the term little as what, how we view it in the world. Not that it actually is little, but someone moving. Right. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's drastic difference between maybe someone that was shot, but that's still something of like a process that someone might have to go through. You're moving your entire life. It could be for a financial reason. It could be trying to get away from abuse, whatever it is. Trauma is simply how we are affected by it Mm -hmm. and not how someone else views it. Or if we go back to what you were talking about with the process, it's not for someone to say, Oh, I've, I went through this traumatic situation based on my race it's not for someone to make judgment and say, well, you tell me about your experience and I'll tell you if it's racism. Who, you yeah. don't get to decide that. <laughs> exactly. That's not how it works. It's all about how we're affected. You don't get to tell me whether or not my, the effect I'm having on some, or the, the emotion I'm getting from something is valid just because of, if it's valid in your eyes. Yeah, and also it's based on my life experience too and the ways that I react to any given situation. Somebody else could have gone through the exact same thing and had a very different reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Because their lived experience would would allow them to feel it differently. I had one of the women, young women who was with me, um, a family friend, when I got shot and she tried to save the man's life who was dying next to me. I talked to her Uh, we talked maybe two years ago for the first time since the shooting, because everybody that I was there with, we just, we had this amazing night and then it ended in such a devastating way. It felt like we were going to be friends for life while we were connecting and laughing. And, and then, and then the shooting happened and we all went our separate ways and we didn't, we didn't talk about it again. And so we connected a couple of years ago. She saw the work that I was doing and she was like, Hey, if you ever want to talk about it, let me know. And we talked it through, both of us shared what happened from our perspectives. Mm -hmm. And she was saying that she hasn't felt a huge impact from it. The thing that weighs on her the most is the guilt. And so she still really feels the remnants of that guilt of not saving that man's life. But she doesn't live with the anxiety or with the, you know, she had a very different she had a very different reaction to the shooting as a whole. And so it, that to me, because I know people who have lived through a shooting where they didn't get shot, but they have very, you know, very traumatic experience as a result of it and live with anxiety in the aftermath. Yeah. You, I remember you told me about how your experience, I don't, I think you said it was a, 
it wasn't your cousin. It was a friend of the family where she said that she felt like she panicked in the moment. And you said you viewed her as the one that was helping everyone. Mm, yeah. Am I, am I remembering it right? I think that, so this, that's actually the woman that I'm talking about right now. Because oh, okay. She was saying that she felt like she couldn't touch the man who was, who was dying. She was scared. The to one touch that was next to you. Blood everywhere. Yeah. And I, she just seemed like she was the one that was taking care of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's like you said, it's so interesting how you see her that way. And she still has the guilt where I wish it would be as simple as just saying, well, did you do everything that you could or that you felt like you did everything you could in that moment? If her answer is yes, to just like let go of that guilt. But unfortunately it's not that. Yeah. Even if she did do everything that she could, I've spoken to so many survivors. I I remember speaking to a Vegas survivor and then an Aurora theater shooting survivor um, who both had so much guilt for not saving other people. And the, the survivor from the Aurora theater shooting in Colorado was saying that she she tried to carry this man out, but she she couldn't run fast enough and the shooter was coming. And so she ran and she let him go. And she had so much guilt about that. One thing that I reminded them was that you did save a life. Even if the life was your own, you saved a life. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important to recognize that when you do something, and as part of letting go of guilt, you did everything that you could with the information that you had in that moment. Right. Usually when we make decisions, we're making decisions in, in the best way possible with the information that we have in that moment. Of course, and in retrospect. Under yeah. And in retrospect, you can be like, well, I wish that I had done this, or I wish that I had gone... Yes, but in the moment you were taking care of yourself, you were trying to survive. It is instinct. You, your body was moving. Your brain was rapid firing, doing whatever you needed to do in order to live. Mm-hmm. So you, you did the best you could, no matter what it is that you did. That was the best that you were capable of doing in that moment. Yeah. Because you, I know that because you did it. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you had done anything else, then that would have been the best that you could have done, but you did the best that you could. And this is the result. And there's nothing that you can do to change. Yeah, It wasn't like you're pushing people in front of the line of like you did what you felt like you, or not even what you felt, what you had the capacity to do. So you can't, you know, and it's like I said, going, trying to go back to that moment and think about it where now you might be a little bit more calm versus in the moment where you're panicking and all these things are going on at the same time. It's just, you don't, you don't know how to, just like somebody that might learn, like, go take a self-defense class. You might have all, every move down. And then when someone attacks you, you're just like tripping yeah, and losing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's yeah. And also same. like, we don't give ourselves credit for saving our lives. Like our, our lives are, especially in the aftermath of gun violence, it is so hard to remember that your life is valuable, that your life is worth saving, that your life is worth living. Yeah. And that if you died with that person, it would have impacted so many more people. So many more people would be grieving a loved one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's hard to know that. It's hard to internalize that after gun violence. And this, it sounds like too, when you're, you're, um, what's the, what's the name of the event that you're doing every, you said first and third Sunday. 
Um, it's a clubhouse room and it's called Survivor Sundays. So Survivor it's a, it's under the club gun violence survivors. Okay. So we're, we can add, is there a link we can add to the episode notes? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I feel like that's one of those things, like you said, where this woman's there and she said, I'm not ready to say anything. I'm just here to listen. Mm-hmm. That might've been too soon for her to really say anything. Right. Until it wasn't. She ended Until up. Until it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you don't know what's going to help you. And then she stepped in and said something yeah. and she's like, oh, this is shockingly helpful for me right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For her, she said that she was just downstairs with her kids making lunch. It was actually her dad that invited her into the room. It's really powerful when we oh, have wow. family members inviting their other family members yeah. and they're able to connect because she hadn't opened up to her family about it and her dad invited her into the room and he asked us if we could invite her on stage which we did but that's why she was on stage and she was like I don't want to talk yet but when she did open up it was so powerful to hear the connection between her and her dad and to she said she had planned on you know making lunch and staying downstairs with her kids but she found herself upstairs in our closet just crying and then she opened up about how she had been feeling and what she had been struggling with. And one of the, my favorite things about this space that we created is that it's there's no underlying intention besides providing space for survivors to connect and to, to open up. Yeah. You know, we're not trying to fix people. We're not taking people through any kind of therapeutic process it is a it is an open space for people to share about their traumas and to be able to be heard and seen and felt and you are not you know if you come and show up angry then show up angry they're probably half most of the people in the room are probably angry too you know if you show up and you're sad or heartbroken or whatever it might be it's a really powerful space I love it um, and I'm, I think it's, it's very rare in the survivor world because most opportunities for survivors to share their stories are slightly exploitative in that it's either a fundraising venture for a nonprofit or gun violence prevention organization, or it's for a news report or something, something that is not just survivor, let yourself be heard. Um, so it's really powerful. And the reason that we created it is because we struggled. I struggle. I, I am a hundred percent the avoidant type. I never wanted to talk about it. Never wanted to think about it. Whenever it came back up, I would try my best to just brush it off and move on. And I still have that. My initial reaction to struggling with something is to shut down, is to avoid people and not want to be around anyone, which is why that phrase I'm having a hard time is so important for me mm-hmm. because I will want to just completely retreat. And while I think it's really important to honor that to some degree, because sometimes I just, I just do need space. A lot of times it's also, I'm trying not to take up space or I'm worried if I say it out loud, people will judge me, or I feel like there's nobody I can talk to about this or, you know, fill in the millions of reasons that we don't say our stuff out loud. Right. I will do those things. And so for me, it is so important to remind myself to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is a practice. It is a powerful revolutionary practice in my mind. It goes against our culture of 
sucking it up, holding it in this hyper-masculinity, you know, strength <laughs> means shutting down, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is really dangerous and right. problematic in so many ways, but it goes, it's, it's a cultural resistance. It's an act of cultural resistance yeah. by being vulnerable. And it is a powerful, important act. And if you were raised in America, chances are your instinct is to not be vulnerable, but it is, you know, I think one of the most powerful things that we can do to fight the status quo and to create a healthier, a healthier, healthier culture on the other side of this. So, oh yeah. Yeah. Cause the vulnerability is not, it's what we are used to. Like you said, it's what we cling to. And even though it might feel uncomfortable to be vulnerable, I'm pretty sure the majority would agree that it would feel a lot better to be able to be vulnerable and allow people in to help or just to express themselves. You might be more comfortable with not being vulnerable, but that's not, it doesn't make you feel better. It doesn't, (laughs) it really doesn't. And that, I think another fear that I had was that if I open up, it's going to be like, oh, this, the dam breaking and everything's going to pour out and I'm not going to figure, I'm not going to know how to put myself back together again. And I think that was a big fear of mine for a long time, which is why, you know, being at a conference or being at a retreat where people are actively working through things has always been helpful to me because if I do feel like I can't put myself back together again, I'm in a space with community and I, I can figure out how to at least feel okay in that moment if I haven't worked fully through everything. Um, but again, one of the reasons that we do this space on clubhouse is because there aren't a lot of places that you, especially when we're isolated right now, there aren't a lot of places where we can come together. There aren't a lot of places where survivors are heard and seen and can coexist. Um, and it is a beautiful community. There are so many magical things that happen in that space that they make me feel like I'm, I'm excited and happy to be a part of this community, even though I would have never asked for it if somebody had given me the option, Yeah, but there are so many beautiful human beings that are there that just give from the generosity in their hearts um, and feel compelled to, to support each other in a really beautiful way. And when I see the family connections that happen and people hear their loved ones opening up for the first time, it just, it's a really wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And that goes back to what we were talking about with it not just being about the quantity of what of who we think was affected by something because people just hear like, oh, okay, that's great. Then, you know, they'll see something where, you know, seven people were killed, but 14 of them survived and they're like, oh, that's so great. And then that's the end of it. We don't talk about how, how they were affected and don't even think about how they're still dealing with things years, years later or the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, I think we also ignore when we, so statistics can be hard because they, they don't show the human side of it and the story behind it. But there's one statistic that always stands out to me. And it's the fact that 58% of Americans, it's over 20 million human beings in this country, more than half of the country. So 58% of Americans have been impacted by gun violence as they say that they or their loved ones have been impacted by gun violence and if their loved ones have been impacted then it also makes them a survivor as a result of that so 
think about the fact that more than half of the people in this country yeah. are impacted. Think about how many people are walking around silently suffering as a result of that, that don't necessarily share their stories because they don't right. feel like they're worth sharing and they don't feel like people will receive them in the right way. Yeah. So if you want to focus on a statistic, that's the, that's a, the one you want to focus on. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. I looked into, um, there is a trauma-informed care implementation mm-hmm. resource center that has some great information. And again, it's not a one size fits all for this one thing that's going to work for everyone. But I looked into a couple things that I thought were very just interesting techniques, um, kind of plays into what we were talking about is, you know, that physical example you gave that you can also use in that emotional side. Mm-hmm. But there's one that they mentioned, which is tapping. Are you familiar with this one? Or have, is it something you've used? It is something I've used. Yeah. I think tapping is really interesting. I think any kind of energy work can be really powerful. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that I use regularly, but there is a woman that I follow who uses tapping for abundance. And I think it's mm-hmm. a, um, I think it's a great method to use. Yeah. It can be really powerful. Yeah, I looked at the video that they actually have on the website too. And it talks about exactly what you were saying as you feel those nerves in your stomach, because that's the exact same way I feel things. Yeah. But I think it's amazing how it ties in of just like that, even if it's that area where you're feeling it. And even if it's not a physical way that you're feeling it, it's more of a, um, from my understanding too, of also putting you in that space of like, what's real, like you said, what's actually real and telling yourself like, you're here right now. This is where you're at. Exactly. Yeah. And then the National Council Organization also has uh, some symptoms of trauma, the checklist that they have that can be useful for yourself or for others that you're around and maybe noticing these signs. But a couple of things here is just, you know, constant headaches, back aches, stomach aches, uh, sudden sweating or heart palpitations and or heart palpitations, uh, easily startled by noises or unexpected touch, fear, depression, or anxiety, emotional mood swings, tendency to isolate oneself or feeling detached and self-blame, survivor's guilt, as you mentioned, or shame. Yeah. There's also difficulty trusting and or feelings of betrayal and diminished interest in everyday activities. There's a, the list is longer. Those are just some key ones that stuck out to me. And then there's also helpful coping strategies. And I'll just touch on a few of them. I will put the link to this article in the episode notes. <clears throat> But there's acknowledgement that you have been through traumatic events. So like you said, not, you said you tend to go towards the avoidant part. So at some point realizing like what has happened so that you can heal mm-hmm. um, exercise, which is one that helps me, but I understand again, it's not going to be, you know, the, the route for everyone um, maintaining balanced diet and a sleep cycle. One that I know you are a big fan of too, is taking up uh, music or engaging in music. Yeah. Avoiding overusing stimulants like caffeine, sugar, or nicotine. So I feel like a Mm -hmm. lot of people don't realize that if they're feeling very exhausted or emotionally exhausted, they'll tend to just go towards something like coffee to kind of get them out of that exhausted feeling, but really can do the opposite effect for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also that distraction. It's a great distraction. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the last two I'll mention is uh, commit to something personally meaningful and important every day. And then also write about your experiences for yourself or to share with others, Mm -hmm. which I think is great because 
not everyone is really in that place of like wanting to talk and they might be afraid, like you said, of just, you know, um, exploding, whether it's out of anger or sadness, but even writing down your feelings and reading them back when you feel like you're in a better place where you can see the, pr- the progression you've made or taking that letter and giving it to someone or even taking the letter and getting rid of it, but writing it down if you're not comfortable with talking really goes a long way. Absolutely. Yes. Journaling for me has been, I think it's probably what got me through the first however many years before I opened up for the first time, mm. because I just wrote everything that I felt down when it came yeah. up for me. Yeah. I think it's a powerful process. Yeah. I love all of those suggestions. I think that every, you know, every, I think I told you, it might've been in the last conversation that we had, but I went through a time period where I was just trying every possible method that I could find because I wanted to find what worked best for me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important for people to remember that if you haven't found that yet, you can and you will as long as you keep looking for what works best for you I use so many different things at different times and understanding and having control over my own recovery has been so valuable and important for me Mm -hmm. that piece where you were talking about um about stimulants and using using them as distractions from emotions it is so tempting to distract yourself from your emotions and we are so good at it We have so many things that come at us constantly. We can pick up our phone and just have access to the entire world in a second. It's so easy to distract ourselves from what's happening inside of our bodies or inside of our minds. And this year it started to get a little harder because a lot of us were isolated. And because of that, that, you know, you can't avoid the stuff that keeps coming up if there's nobody around to (laughs) help distract you. Yeah. So a lot of us started having those painful things surface. And I think probably on the flip side that things like addiction or, you know, even habits like, um, mm-hmm. like drinking coffee and, you know, being on screens have probably increased because we're trying to distract ourselves in those moments and just noticing when you're distracting yourself and asking yourself, what am I avoiding right now? I think is, is such a, It's such a little thing to do, but it's really hard to do in that moment when you're avoiding it, that once you figure out what that thing is that you're avoiding, if I find myself picking up my phone constantly, I'll go on a walk outside in my, in our little garden. And I'll just ask myself, what am I running away from? What am I avoiding right now? And if I, if I'm having a hard time, either figuring out what it is or stopping avoiding it (laughs) having a hard time facing it yeah then that's when I say to somebody I'm having a hard time and I think I need some support I don't know what I'm struggling with or I'm struggling with this and I need help to do it sometimes I ask my kids if they can hide my phone for a couple of hours (laughs) right yeah. You know, get support. You don't have to do stuff all by yourself. And you can ask for support from anybody that's in your life, especially if you can let them know explicitly what it is that you need help with or what it is that you want them to do, what role you want them to play in that support, even if it's just listening. Yeah. I had a podcast episode that came out a couple of weeks ago about escape theory and just the the escaping or avoiding is not actually the healing. So one of the examples I just use is if you're terrified of dogs and you're walking past your neighbor's home, 
and you know, you get all these feelings and you freak out. If you take a different route, that doesn't take away your fear of dogs. No. You're just going a different route. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or looking on your phone, right? We tend to do that if we're in groups of people. And the other example I gave was like, you're standing in an elevator with a bunch of people you really don't know. And you're just standing there and you feel so uncomfortable, which is more of a modern day thing too, because we have our phones, like you said. So yeah. instead of you looking around or making eye contact with someone and not knowing what to say, what do you do? You grab your phone. And you just start looking and maybe you don't get your phone this time. And maybe you're kind of panicking and maybe that's not so much of an escape, but you're still having an issue there, but that's a step in the right direction of trying to get yourself out of that place. Yeah. And just noticing what's happening in your body or what's happening in your mind. And then maybe practicing whatever it is that works for you when you're experiencing anxiety, whether it's practicing gratitude for what's in the moment or processing your emotions or coming up with an escape route out of that elevator. Yes. (laughs) Whatever works for you to help you work through that. But you know, mm-hmm. or tapping, like literally any, any method that works well for you. I love things that I can pull out and do on the fly when I'm experiencing something in the moment. I don't, I don't want to take, okay, we just had a conversation and I got triggered and now I want to wait till next week. And I'm with the person that I can talk through this with. I want to, I want to have ways that I can work through that right now right afterwards. Right. Because for me, it's really important to, to not bottle things up and build them up and keep them because they intend to grow the longer you keep them, the longer oh, you yeah. hold them in. So find the things that work best for you. Yeah. You know, journaling, meditation, dance, gardening. Yeah, yeah definitely. Somatic healing methods. <laughs> It's been so great having you on the podcast. I feel like we can never have a short conversation, which I I love because we just start pulling things out that we didn't even know were either things that are affecting us or we just start like our minds wander in these directions that bring up really powerful topics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would love thriving. to. You are always welcome on the podcast. It's saying it's amazing. Like I said before, how you do this, you know, let's talk about something hard and then we're laughing and we don't even know how we got there. It's amazing. <laughs> I know. Um, That's funny. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's awesome and it's a gift and we get to have you on the podcast. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I love this podcast so much and I appreciate you. So thank you for inviting me. Any other time you want to chit chat, hang out, do whatever, man, I'm always down. This is so fun. Yeah, I love it. I love it.